0: This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Today's scripture passage comes from Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Amen. Amen. Um, When I asked Inder to do his testimony today, I I didn't give him much instruction. I just asked him to think about it and pray over it and share with the church whatever was on his heart. And and it just so happened that he, he spoke so well about what today's message is about. It's about the gathering. It's about the church. And then to share how being a part of this community helped him grow. He shared the dynamics of this community. He, he shared how, how essential and vital it is for our Christian journey that we be a part of this gathering. And this psalm today, the, one of the 15 psalms that helps us on our spiritual journey, highlights the importance and significance of being a part of the body of Christ, this gathering. And so we're going to go straight into it, and we're going to look at the joy in the gathering, the joy in the gathering. So if we take a quick review of where our pilgrim has come, we started in Psalm 120, where he's crying out in distress to the Lord. He's displaced. He's away from Israel. He's living in a foreign land. He's living amongst hostile people. He describes him as liars, as deceitful, people out for war. So he cries out to God in lament and sorrow for the situation he's in. And then we move to Psalm 121, where he looks his eyes up to the hill. He's now beginning on the journey to Jerusalem, but he knows the journey there is not going to be an easy one. There's many dangers and toils and snares along the way, but he knows that God is his help. He knows that God will keep him on this journey. And today, in Psalm 122, our pilgrim, now arrives in Jerusalem. Read with me verses one and two. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. You can just feel the joy of this pilgrim, right? He says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, implying that he wasn't there yet. He was excited and filled with joy with just the prospect of going into God's presence with God's people to worship. And then verse 2, his feet are standing in Jerusalem, within the gates of Jerusalem. He has arrived and his heart is full. I mean, what a contrast between the words we read here today in the 122nd Psalm to the words that we read in the 120th where he said, in my distress, I called out to the Lord. He says, woe to me that I live in this hostile land amongst hostile people. But this pilgrim is no longer in a far country, but now he's in the holy city, and he's filled with joy to be with God's people. The house of the Lord, the gathering of God's people, is like an oasis for this pilgrim. He was living in a harsh land. He was embarking on a harsh journey, but he gathers with God's people, and it serves as an oasis for him, and it fills him with absolute joy. There's an Olympian named Maro Prospergi. I probably just butchered that pronunciation, um, but he was an Olympian athlete, and uh, he enjoyed running marathons on his free time. It was just something. It was his hobby. And especially marathons where you're in close contact with nature. And so when he was about 39 years old, and this was back in 1994, he decided to run this marathon called the Marathon des Sables. Um, and it's known as one of the most intense foot races on planet Earth. What it is, is it's a six-day race, 250 kilometers through the Saharan desert. It's absolutely insane. Um, I don't know if they still do this, but at the time, he had to sign a waiver indicating where he wanted his body to go in case he passed away. This is how difficult and insane this race is. And uh, he had a wife and three kids, and his wife was understandably so worried about him joining this race. But in his mind, he thought, what's the worst that could happen Is you know, just getting a sunburn? Well, um... Actually, something much worse did happen to him on this race. It was about on the fourth day of this race that he got separated from the pack. And, um, he, and all of a sudden, a, a, a crazy sandstorm hit. And the wind started blowing. The sand was being lifted. He couldn't see in any direction. He was walking aimlessly. He had a wrapped scarf around his head. And eventually, he just couldn't go anywhere. So he tried to find where he could, a place to shelter down. The storm lasted eight hours, eight hours, and by the time it finished, it was nighttime. He couldn't travel, so he just hunkered down for the night, and he woke up in the morning. He woke up, and to his realization, the whole landscape had changed. He had a compass, he had a map with certain landmarks, but none of it was, was there. He was absolutely, he was completely lost, separated from the pack. And so he just started on his way. You know, his journey of survival is just incredible. If you hear all the details, I'm not going to go over all of them, but he went through immense physical and emotional and psychological turmoil. I mean, this this is the Saharan Desert, right? And he was only lost for 10 days, but that 10 days, it took him months to recover. He grew so incredibly dehydrated immediately. Uh, you know, he had to survive off his urine. He was looking for snakes and lizards, eating them raw. It, it, it just took an immense physical toll on his body. Emotionally well, as well, it was just devastating for him. He recalls on the second day, he heard a helicopter flying by. Imagine being stranded and lost in the desert, and you hear a helicopter and the hope that it brings to you. But the helicopter was flying so low, he shot a flare into the sky. Hot helicopter couldn't see it, and so it just keeps going. Imagine the despair, the emotional turmoil that you would go through from that. And so he continued in his journey. And about the fourth day, he ran across a a Muslim shrine, empty, completely empty. But he stayed there in hopes that there would be passerbyers that would find him. First day, nobody. Second day, nobody. Third day, nobody. But what he did hear was a plane flying through the sky. And so quickly he gets up, he lights a fire, hopefully that smoke will send a signal, the pilot would see him, and he would come down and be rescued. Well, as soon as he lit that fire, another sandstorm hit. Devastated. He he had no will to go on any longer. But he did. He got himself together, and it was about the eighth day, finally, he came across an oasis water in the middle of the desert. Can you imagine what he felt? The joy, the relief, the hope that it brought him to find this oasis. He recalls laying down by that water and sipping on the water for seven hours straight. And eventually he would get enough energy. He walked around and he found footprints And so he knew people were frequenting this oasis. So he stood there and he waited. And on the 10th day, finally, his rescue came. That oasis was a lifesaver. That joy he must have felt when he got there. Church, is that the joy you feel when you come into this gathering? After a harsh week, Maybe it's a tough week at work. Your your boss is riding your back. You're having trouble with coworkers, and it's, it's difficult. Do you come in here with that joy to be able to gather with God's people, in God's presence, to worship God? Some weeks we do. Some weeks we are. Some weeks we are so happy to be here. But the reality is there's a lot of weeks where we come in here, and we're kind of dragging our feet. There's a lot of weeks we come in here that it feels like it's habit, it's uh, repetition, which is going through the motions. And I'm not saying this to, to, to point fingers or judge. That's the experience of all of us, every Christian. In all our walks, there are Sundays where it is just difficult to come in here, where we don't have that joy of being able to gather with the saints. And I want to propose to us, the reason is not necessarily because of our harsh situations and harsh circumstances that we go through. Yes, they do have an impact on us. But mostly, it's a problem with our hearts. It's a problem with our hearts. During the week, what are we worshiping? What are we looking to for our salvation? There's a quote by... um, David Tripp, he says this, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just just a matter of what or whom we serve. Every one of us, we are worshiping something throughout the week. And as his redeemed children, as people saved by grace, we should not just be worshiping on Sundays, but every day of the week. When we get up in the morning saying, thank you, God, that you saved me, that you love me. When we're going through that difficult week at work, praising God, thank you that you know me. Thank you that you sent your son for me. Our hearts, our lives should be filled with worship and thanks to God. But the reality is we struggle. Our hearts prone to wander, and we look to other things to be our salvation, ourselves, our power, our career, our relationships, our money. We find different things to save us from the circumstances that we face during the week. And so by the time we come in here on Sunday, our hearts are burdened and heavy. Our hearts are cold. They have turned away. But there is great news. God in his mercy still invites us every week to this gathering to cure our cold, hardened hearts. Everything we do here in the worship, God is using to bring life back into our hearts that have wandered and strayed. Everything from the call to worship that recognizes that God is the one who has brought us into this building today and that it's Christ Because of Christ, we are able to worship. To the songs that we sing, to confess who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. To the word being preached, the gospel being spoken, and you hearing the gospel every week in the pulpit. To the Lord's Supper, where we take part in this meal and proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection. To the benediction, where he blesses God's people as they enter back into this world to the fellowship you have with your brothers and sisters. All of this is designed so that God would soften our heart and hearts, to draw our hearts back to him, to remind us of what he has done for us, and remind us of who we are because of the gospel. James Smith uh, says this about worship. He says, Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't, something, isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is a heart of discipleship because it is a gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Church, as we journey through this world, there is so much out there that, 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 that tempts our hearts to t- turn away from God. Our hearts are deceitful. There's a lot of things that bring us down. But God has given us this gathering. God has given us this gathering and and this people to recalibrate our hearts back to them, to bring back that joy into our lives. God uses this, this gathering to strengthen us and bring us joy. Next, we're going to look at the unity in the gathering, the unity in the gathering. Let's look down at verses three to five. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, and thrones of the house of David. Now, Israel is known as one nation, but it's a nation made up of 12 different tribes. And all of these tribes were very unique. They had their own little customs and cultures and foods. And so they, they, they were all unique in their own regard. And Jerusalem, what didn't belong to any one tribe, it was a capital, it was a national and religious capital of Israel. And these tribes would come together, they would come to worship. And these tribes would come together and they would settle judicial matters where justice would be carried out by the king, as we see in verse 5, the thrones of judgment were set and the thrones of the house of David. They were in Jerusalem. You can kind of think of it like the United States, right? You have people from New York, you have people from Florida, Chicago, and LA, and yes, they're all Americans by, you know, their, their national identity, but... Being from different states, they all have their own uniqueness. They have their own nuances, the way they say certain things, foods they enjoy. There, there are cultural differences between even states. And that's what the nation of Israel was like. And three times a year, Israelite men from all different tribes from all over the region would come to gather in Jerusalem for the three major festivals. They would come to the temple to offer sacrifices, as verse 4 says, as decreed for Israel to give thanks to the Lord. They were decreed by God to come and do this. And the psalmist is marveled at the sight of all these different tribes coming together in unity, despite any differences they might have had. And to highlight this idea of unity, we have to think about who the author of this psalm is. Now, not all the psalms of the scent, but there a couple were written by King David. And so King David, if you recall his kind of life story, he uh, had a really difficult time when King Saul was out to kill him. King Saul was a previous king, and King David was the king after. And uh, Saul grew jealous that David was being... Uh, that he grew in amongst the people. He grew jealous of David, so much so that he tried to kill him. He tried to kill him with his own hands, with a spear. David would flee. He would send messengers several times to go get David and bring him back so he could kill him. And eventually, Saul, he, he took a whole army out with him to go hunt David down. And David was in so much distress, wandering and hiding in the wilderness. And we get many of the Psalms today during that time of David's life. And uh, I don't know about you, but if someone was out for my life, it would be kind of hard to let go. It'd be kind of hard to brush off and just move on. Well, Saul would ultimately be unsuccessful in killing David. Saul would pass away, and David would become king. But that, that beef, that kind of feud, didn't just end with Saul. You see, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, and David was from the tribe of Judah. And when Saul and David kind of had their beef, the tribe of Benjamin turned against David and they turned against the tribe of Judah and they didn't really accept David like, as the king. They didn't really recognize him. And there was a bloody affair even as David became king. And so there was kind of a beef between these tribes because of the drama between King David and King Saul. And yet David, despite this past, despite the troubles between these tribes, he's sitting there and he sees the unity of Israel as they come together to worship God, as they put their differences aside and to come into the house of the Lord. Verse 3 says, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. In other words, it's a city that is solidly united where all the tribes come to go and worship. Kind of go back to David, another story. Um, It was customary for when a king, as soon as they entered power, they would kill everyone from the family of the previous um, king. It was just customary because you never know what could happen. Someone from that family could get some ideas and try to kill you and take power back. And so it was wise, and David had every right to kill everyone from Saul's family, just to ensure his kingship. Well, one day he calls this man, uh, Mephibosheth, to his temple. To, I mean, to his, um, to his quarters, right? And Mephibosheth was crippled in both feet. He was Saul's grandson. He was Jonathan's son. And so Mephibosheth is brought before King David, and he's trembling. He's thinking that King David is going to end his life. He had every right to. But David tells him this. In 2 Samuel 9, 7, he says, Do not be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Notice the kindness and grace that David extended to Mephibosheth. Socially, Mephibosheth was a cripple. He had no standing socially. Mephibosheth was also pride, part of the tribe that was against David, and he was part of the family that should have been executed by David. But David extends this kindness to him and mercy to him and invites him to sit at the king's table always. There is no social, political, economic, or ethnic division in God's gathering. David practiced this. David knew this when he extended this kindness to Mephibosheth. And if we think about it, aren't we all like Mephibosheth? Weren't we all once crippled and blinded because of our sin, dead to our sin, against God, not a part of his family, adversaries to him, but God sent Christ in his mercy to die for us, and now we are invited to sit at the table with the King of Kings. That is who we are all, who we are all are. We are all sitting at the table before God, undeserved of that grace and kindness. And when you understand and realize this truth, you look to your brothers and sisters and you extend that same kindness and love and warmth to them. We look around Gospel City, and especially here in this setting, this expat setting, we see such great diversity. There's people of all different backgrounds, nationalities, ethnicities, many different languages spoken here, people from all different denominations, and that is is just beautiful, and we all get together and worship God. It's such a sight to behold every week. These are people that seemingly we don't have anything in common with, except that we are all sinners saved by grace, invited to sit at the table with God. We show no division, whether ethnic, whether political, economic, or social. There is unity in this gathering. But when we gather, there are definitely times where we rub shoulders with one another. There are people that are difficult to get along with. There are people with different backgrounds, different values, different mindsets with us. And as we gather, there isn't always unity among us. We're going to face that friction. But when we do, we display the gospel to one another, just the way that this gospel was given to us. We show forgiveness and mercy. We try to support each other, encourage one another, and walk with one another, and through this gathering and through showing and displaying the gospel with one another, Christ works in us. It's in this gathering, as we rub shoulders with each other, that we are being conformed to the image of Christ more and more. And so we seek the unity of this gathering for the good of this church and for ourselves as well. But we not only seek unity, but we also commit to this gathering. And that brings us to our final part, a commitment to this gathering. Let's look down and read verses 6 to 9. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers' and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The psalmist begins with just immense joy to be a part of this gathering, to be with God's people in the presence of God, to worship God. And he moves to the end of this psalm with a commitment now to God's people. He ends with a commitment to this gathering. Three times he says, peace Peace, peace. He's praying for the peace of the people. And peace is not necessarily the absence of strife and war, but it signifies a wholeness, a completeness, that we are to pray for the church to be the church that God desires for us to be. And he also seeks the good of the people. He seeks the welfare of the people to love one another, to serve one another, to consider each other highly than ourselves. And so what's happened to the psalmist is as he's coming to this gathering, as he's growing closer to the Lord, his heart is being shaped by God, and he commits to the body, to the gathering of God's people. A heart changed by the gospel commits to the church, to pray for the church and seek the good of the people. The two are inseparable. The love of Christ equals the love for his church. If you love Christ, you love his church. The Bible describes the Christ, the body of Christ, this gathering as the bride of Christ, right? Revelation describes this final day where there would be a wedding supper, where there'd be a union, a final consummation, where the Christ bride would be married to Christ. And don't let this metaphor escape you. If we really think about what it means for the church to be the bride of Christ, what does it mean for anyone to be someone's bride? That bridegroom is going to look upon that bride, and that bride is so beautiful to him. Christ looks at this body, and it's absolutely beautiful to him. The bridegroom will look at his bride, and he'll look at her with absolute love. And Christ looks at this gathering, this group of Believers with absolute love. So much so that he gave himself. He sacrificed himself and gave his life for this body, for this gathering. And having given himself, he promises to keep his bride. To protect his bride to the final day. Where he promises even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so if your heart has been shaped and transformed by the gospel, if you have a love for Christ, it equates to a love for the church. If you love God, there is a commitment that comes to the church, his body. And one of the most encouraging things I discovered here at Gospel City is just how much you guys are committed and how much you guys love this church. It's evident in the ways that the ratio of people who serve here is just astounding. It's evident in the ways that all of us are committed to community groups and, and committed to community and growing with one another. It's evident in the ways that we are willing to financially give and support the work of the gospel here at Gospel City. It's evident in so many different ways, and I want to encourage you, church, to continue to continue to pray for the peace of the church, to continue to seek out the good of your brother's And sisters, and for those who maybe haven't, because it can be difficult, it can be a little bit challenging and frightening at times, I want to encourage you to get involved, right? You love Christ, that means you love his bride, you love the church. Start off small, like Inder said, right? Say hello to someone. Develop relationships. Find a community group. Find different ways that you can serve. And it's in this body, as we commit ourselves to the bride of Christ, he encourages us and strengthens us for our journey. The gathering is given to us so that we don't have to take this journey alone. We sojourn through this world with other brothers and sisters who encourage us, who strengthen us, who help shape us into the image of Christ. And I want to finish on the snow. We read this psalm and we hear of this pilgrim taking this journey to Jerusalem. And much later on, another pilgrim would take a similar journey to Jerusalem. But instead of great joy upon his arrival, great sorrow fell upon his heart. And he cried out for Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem would reject him, and eventually Jerusalem would fall to destruction. But this pilgrim continued on his journey into the city. And as he arrived there, he was betrayed. He was falsely accused, and he was put on a cross as a criminal, even though he was the perfect pilgrim who obeyed God perfectly. He gave himself up to be put on that cross as a sacrifice for our sins so that we no longer have to take this trip to Jerusalem. But for those who put their faith and trust in him, he has has promised us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that resides in us, and we are now the temple of God until that final day where there will be a new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, one through four, says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down and out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, Christ, He has given us this gathering. He has given us this church where there is great joy, where He's working in our hearts. We strive for unity here, because we've all been invited to the table to feast with the King. Let's pray, church. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centred churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.